welcome to season two of Lightwork Presents Everything is Connected, where we share inspiring stories with artists and art professionals on a wide range of topics, including race, work ethics, inspiration, and the ways in which art influences and is affected by culture. Join us as we continue the journey of sharing the interesting and inspiring stories of some of today's hottest artists and art professionals in the industry. Let's go. On this episode, we're joined by Janae Daria Strand, the curatorial assistant for the Elizabeth A. Sackler Center for Feminist Art at the Brooklyn Museum. Janae Daria aims to expand her knowledge of art history and integrate her interests in performance practices to examine Black subjectivity within the museum setting. She holds a BFA from Florida State University and is pursuing her MA at New York University. So first things first, I'd like to ask you a little bit about how you became a curatorial assistant and sort of what are some of the things that have happened in your life that led you to a career in the arts? Sure. So going as far back as elementary school, I've always been interested in the arts because my mom put me in dance at an early age. She's from Guyana and didn't have the resources or the means to go to classes herself and, you know, made it a point to instill a love for the arts in those who she's surrounded by and those that she raised, which would be me because I'm her only child. <laughs> but from being in elementary school, I was in dance all my life up until college. So I went to performing arts high school in New York called Talent Unlimited High School and then uh, went to Florida State University for undergrad and majored in dance there. And initially, I thought I'd major in dance and math and then quickly realized, like, no, dance is just for me. And then once I graduated from FSU, I was offered two positions, one as an administrative assistant to Alice Shepard, who's a disabled dance artist and is doing really great work in the field. And secondly, as a administrative assistant and then ultimately company manager to Meredith Monk, who is a really great performance artist as well. And she's one of the pioneers of interdisciplinary performance. And so from working with Meredith, I knew that I had the language of curation. I knew that curation was a thing, but I didn't know what that looked like. And also growing up in Brooklyn, I've been really immersed with the Brooklyn Museum, but also had no tactile realization or no experience of what does it look like to curate, period, let alone in an institution. And so I dropped everything and decided to do an unpaid internship at the Brooklyn Museum last year. So that was in 2019. And I always expressed that I recognize my privilege in being able to accept an unpaid internship and to be able to do that for a span of time. So from that internship, I applied for the position that I'm currently in and was hired almost a year ago, two days shy of a year on September 30th of 2019. Congratulations. Thank you. It's always good to hear, you know, when you hear stories of people kind of going out on a leap of faith, because I think in some sense, you know, doing work for free, if you might be giving up your ability to make some more money elsewhere and kind of making a sacrifice, you know, those things pay off. Exactly. It is few and far between taking that leap of faith sometimes. It's a necessary leap. And I actually was torn between, okay, do I possibly do this internship or do I go into a post back or go into an academic setting that feels a little bit more comfortable? Right. And thankfully, by the grace of God, honestly, that, you know, things aligned and I'm wearing <laughs> it now. So I wanted to ask okay. you for all the like newbies, you know, who are new to watching the show and might not completely well versed in the art world, 
What is it like to be a curatorial assistant? What does your work entail? Could you just talk a little bit more about what is it like to curate a show? Mm, that's a good question. I feel like there are a lot of assumptions, but not enough words in the world for the experience is actually like. So it's quite admin heavy, which people may not initially think of when they hear curator, but it is quite admin heavy. There's a lot of scheduling and there's a lot of coordination. Essentially, you're the person that the curators who are in charge of the show will go to. You're the person that the exhibition producers will go to to say, hey, is this loan form due? Is this, you know, when is this project supposed to happen? When is this? You're the keeper of all information in a sense. You're kind of supposed to be aware of each of the moving parts and have a hand at each of the moving parts so that you can best assist and best facilitate the fruition of the project. And so realistically, what that looks like is, you know, sending emails between the curator, the artist, the institution, just to keep track of whether it's a loan that's coming in, whether it's an acquisition being made for the institution, whether it's various meetings and various proposals for exhibitions. You kind of have a hand in a little bit of everything, which I've been you know, reminding myself lately that it may be a lot of work, it may be a little bit tough, but it's also setting you up for the next thing. It's also, you know, really pruning you, really stretching you in a way that aligns you best for what's next. So there is an admin part, but there's also what I've been exploring lately as well, which is, you know, having a small voice, but also, you know, a voice in the curatorial process and assisting the curators, offering your input, offering ideas whether it's program ideas, whether it's exhibition design ideas. And we have a robust team that assists with all of that. But, you know, just to be able to say, hey, I think this should go there. Or I think this person should be in conversation with this person. That always feels good to know that you have, you know, some doing in the fruition of a project. Yes, absolutely. And I'm sure it's also great to be a part of a project from start to finish, you know, to kind of sit in a room as ideas are flowing and as people are thinking, okay, how can we do or what should we do or what are we interested in for this season? And being there like, you know, on the ground floor while something is taking its shape. And then also the process of like watching it take that shape and become something real must be also very nice. Exactly. And, you know, I've been trying to remind myself, but also been trying to spread as far as possible is like, as Black people, we shouldn't piecemeal ourselves when we're walking into these spaces. I feel like my experience growing up in the heart of Bed-Stuy shapes as much of my knowledge as now being a master's candidate at NYU does. Like, there's no either or when I bring myself to the table. It's both of these parts of me are just as valuable and both parts of knowledge are just as essential when you're bringing these ideas to the table in these spaces. Absolutely. And so often that what you just said got me thinking about just the period in industrialization when, or pre-industrialization, just this period of people moving away from farms, women's labor in the home not being as important, men going out and having jobs. And then so there's this whole well of knowledge or this whole skill set that's not seen as nearly as valuable as another skill set. And that there's so much knowledge that's kind of lost if you just say, well, this part isn't important, or this person's work isn't important, or where this person comes from, like bed is less important than someone who's from Brooklyn Heights. 
Exactly. And, you know, I feel like in the art world, there's great interest and great fascination with vernacular art, but we also have to bring that same energy to vernacular knowledge, period. Like, you know, what about the people who just learned about art on their own doing Google searches and, you know, attending events here and there? Like, that's just as valuable as degrees and accolades and all the things that we perceive to be necessary credentials to even be in the space. Absolutely. I wanted to go back a little bit to learning about your experience within the dance world. You've mentioned that you wanted to talk about dance theory and maybe like performance. I'd just be curious to know, like, what was it that sort of interested you and got you sparked and hooked on dance? My mom was a dancer. She danced for Mm -hmm. Alvin Ailey. Like, I always feel so proud to say that because it's such a big deal. You know, and in the 70s, like at that time when she was dancing, it was a huge deal. And even now people are like Alvin Ailey, like, wow. That's a huge deal. I can't even imagine what her stories and what her experience might even be like. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I'm just curious, you know, how did dance make its way into your life? And what is it that you enjoy about it? You know, what are you kind of like inspired by when it comes to dance, when it comes to performance art in general? I guess the mix of what we would consider like vernacular and institutionalized. I'm really inspired by, you know, being at my family parties and just seeing my family waltz around the kitchen because that's what they grew up and that's what they know to do. But also by the technicality of the Misty Copelands, all of the stars of the world who, you know, put so much time and dedication into learning this craft. For me personally, I would love to see which institutions are starting to do and have done over the past few decades. But I would love to see more widely dance and performance art be considered as tangible objects of collection to be preserved within institutional spaces. I feel like the same energy that we give to works of art that we consider to be whatever medium, we should also give that same energy to dance. Because whether we like to admit it or not, or whether we realize it or not, Dance has been a through line from the beginning of time to now. You know, it's, it's evolved, it's changed. It has just as much history as other works of art that we consider to be valuable, necessary to be collected do. And so that's where my interest lies in the collection practices of performance and just the possibilities of that, the theory around that, the research around that, you know, being developed quite amazingly from scholars in the field, but also could be pushed forward to more institutions, I feel. Yes, definitely. I'm reading something about you now that says that you've worked on projects that examine Black subjectivity through historical precedents, including one of your first independent co-curations in August of 2019 at Gloria Gale Gallery in NYC. Can I ask you a little bit about the kinds of choices that you make in terms of what kind of work you want to share or the kinds of artist work that you want to share? Are you often interested in working specifically with Black artists? Yeah, Black artists, but more specifically Black subjectivity. I think that, you know, white artists should be included in that conversation as well. And yes, specifically Blackness as the subject, but the various perspectives and the various means of achieving that through art. Wonderful. Do you feel like you have a lot of opportunities to explore that interest in your current role? I'm going to say no, because it's the nature of the position. I am not primary one who's suggesting, you know, exhibitions. I'm not proposing exhibitions. I'm not bringing exhibitions into the museum or curating them myself. And so 
I can have many victories of suggesting a Black artist to be in conversation. I can, you know, suggest a program around an exhibition or programs around, you know, anything that we have going on at the museum, but it's not up to me. And in that way, it feels limiting, but it's also just the nature of where I am right now in my career and where I am, my position specifically. Of course, completely understood. And it's also quite new, right? I mean, just the first year, right? And it's been such a strange year. So maybe it feels like the first half year, you know, with COVID or the first year and a half, depending on how you feel about everything. Exactly. And I will say that, you know, my outside projects away from the museum have given me more space to cultivate that, which feels really good. So for example, Saturday, I just had the opening of a show that I was a juror for. It's a national show at the Brooklyn Waterfront Artist Coalition in Red Hook. They have a really wow. huge, really great space. Thank you. They have Amazing. a really great space. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah, it was over 100 works in the show, a really great range of artists looking at, you know, our current time, looking at the effects of COVID on artists, but also Blackness and play and also in race, you know, just all of the things that we're currently experiencing, I feel is wrapped up in this show. So it was a great opening, a great turnout. And that felt like a place where I could explore Black subjectivity. I know that this may seem like a funny question or a silly question, but do you think that like collectively, when you look at the art world, when you look at visual representations of Blackness today, that there's a saturation of it? Are we going through a period of trending? And this is something that I've asked artists on this podcast continuously, because I really am curious of like, what's the pulse? What is the sense that people have within the industry? Not only as artists, but, you know, in your position on the other side, on the business side, not on the creation of art side. I wonder if Black visual representations are just saturating the art industry right now and people are scrambling to go and buy the hottest Black artists' work. I will say that everything is cyclical. Though there are specifically Black people within this world who carry that line of activism throughout, like that's the through line of their entire lives. I feel like for institutions, it may be cyclical as many things have been. But I do feel like right now, decision makers and leaders are looking for Black people specifically. They're looking for those voices. They're looking to hear directly from the source. And that is an introduction that has not, I feel, has not been as opportune as it is right now. And I feel like specifically at the museum, we've been having so many conversations within the curatorial department, within the exhibitions department, within almost every department, we've been having more conversations that are at the forefront now than maybe they ever have been. Though I have not been there for the entire existence of the museum, you know, within my experience, it's different than it was a year ago. It's different than it was, you know, only 12 months ago. So I'd say that this moment is creating new conversations. It's creating a new surge of wanting to hear directly from the source in a way that we haven't seen before. And I think also whether that energy continues is up to us, but it's also up to the decision makers. So it could easily be that we slip back into common consciousness that was once what we were living in before, or... We break out of that, like uproot ourselves out of that way of thinking and continue to move forward. And I hate to keep to say it, but with real diversity and inclusion, not just words, but actually having a varied and wide range of people working for companies. I mean, sometimes to just look at the boardroom of like major companies in America, you know, hand off 
you know, one after the other, after the other, and everyone looks exactly the same. And the first thing that I feel is like anxiety and fear. If I look at the boardrooms of the Met as an example, the Guggenheim as an example, when everyone looks the same, it feels like where are different voices? Yeah, exactly. I completely feel that. And I'm always transparent in my experience in saying that I'm the only Black person in the curatorial department right now. And I have been, you know, after our loss, but the, to the Guggen Times incredible gain of Ashley, it's tough. I've had to have that difficult conversation with my department and say, why do I have to go outside of my institution to see myself in the heart of Brooklyn? I shouldn't have to. No one should have to. And I hope it's not a cyclical nature of, yes, we're listening now, but in a year from now, you know, we've turned away and we no longer want to have this conversation. I think it can't only be on Black people to be doing this work because it's exhausting. We have so much other things going on. We have the preservation of ourselves. We have the carrying on of our work personally. To have to do this work within institutions as well, it's fatiguing. It's too much. And to show up every day to work and smile. Exactly. And put on a brave face and act like everything's okay. No, (laughs) I'm tired of it. You know, and someone you know, it isn't that it's all tragedy, right? It's not like, okay. Know, some a black person on the news just got shot again, right? It's not just that. And I feel like that's often, you know, it's the tragedy that people hold on to, but it's also just like, it's hard enough just to be a human being. Right. Take away my, the color of my skin, like take away my gender, you know, just being a person every day has its own challenges. And so you add that to not being able to see anyone else that looks like you, as you said, in the heart of Brooklyn. And I'm sure there can be feelings of like, you know, this is difficult for me. And then it also makes you question, you're almost like gaslighting yourself. Like, did they really just say that? Or am I the one tripping? You know, sometimes it just feels like, well, there's no one else for me to go to because no one else's experience is like mine. May I ask, I hope this is not too personal, but what has your, maybe the feedback been from the people that you work with, if you've had conversations about this and, you know, your higher ups or your bosses or people that you're on a team with, have you been able to be more open and explicit about what it's like to not see anyone else that looks like you at work and have people understand what you're going through and what you're experiencing, or at least what you're trying to communicate? I think that they hear me. I don't know if they understand because I feel like experience comes with understanding, but I think they hear me. And I know that they know that it's a problem, but it's also just the nature of, okay, we're amidst COVID. The budget is already tight. This won't be a problem that's fixed tomorrow. My point is like, this shouldn't have been a problem in the first place. Exactly. Which is maybe too presumptuous of me because I'm not a decision maker. I don't have the wide scope of, you know, looking at budgetary means, but also looking at, you know, the future of, you know, I don't have all of those concerns. I have, you know, what's in my lane, but I'm still pressing forward with the notion of this shouldn't have been a concern in the first place. And now that it is, what are we going to do about it? Maybe that's just a Virgo in me. Maybe that's just like, you know, the actionable item person within me. But also, if we want these institutions to be sustainable with perspectives that are not one track minded, then we need diversity in every single aspect. Absolutely. And I would also add that we need representation. You can't just have a white person advocating for you. You have to have a black person advocating for a black person as well. I think it has to really come on both sides. And so, yeah, I understand completely. May I ask, what are the things that you enjoy the most about your work and your role at the Brooklyn Museum? 
I enjoy all that I'm experiencing. I enjoy that I'm able to learn so much. Even within this short time, I feel like I am definitely not who I was a year ago. And I have a broader, but also more streamlined lens of where I want to go because of this experience. You know, I love the people that I work with. I always shout out Carmen Irmo, who's the associate curator of the Elizabeth A. Sackler Center for Feminist Art. She is just incredible. And she's been, you know, like a mentor, but also a great friend to me. And, you know, activism is part of her daily practice in Jersey City, but also beyond. And so just those kinds of connections and sharing experiences with her, who also started as an intern, who you know then made her way to curatorial assistant and is now you know, a well-respected and herald associate curator and will continue to flourish you know, beyond this point in her career. But you know, just having those experiences, being able to share so much with people like her at the institution, I think is one of my favorite parts of working there. That sense of exposure, being educated, like, yeah, building your wealth of knowledge and experience. Yeah. Exactly. And also a common understanding because she's had the experience of being a curatorial assistant. So she knows, you know, what it's like to be within certain institutions where you're overworked and underpaid and, you know, as so many of us <laughs> are within the art world. You know, people like that yeah. and that that makes all the difference. It truly is a labor of love. Right. Exactly. You don't do it for the money. <laughs> That's for sure. Who are the artists right now that are inspiring you? I'm an old soul, so I'm going to go to like Al Green. You know, I listen to so much good soul music. Oh, I listen yeah. to a lot of jazz too, but also currently a visual artist. I am a big fan of Dana Scruggs, Tavius Walker, Kennedy Yanko, just so many incredible artists right now. Tyler Mitchell, Yo-Yo Lander, just really, really incredible artists. Anything that you're reading right now that you really enjoy? Or anything you've read recently that was super good? I haven't been doing too much reading for leisure, honestly, because yeah. it's cool. <laughs> I'm like with 100 pages a week plus. I haven't been t- doing too much leisure reading, but what do you think? Maybe favorite books? Oh, favorite books. I would say as far as like artist book, um, really great art book that came out not so long ago was a new Black Vanguard edited by Antwerp Sargent. That was great. Yeah, that was kind of mental. Exactly. I also read Wayward Lives by Cydia Hartman. Oh my God. Okay, so I want to get into this. I'm so glad that you mentioned her. But so basically what had happened for me was, so COVID hit and I was going through my IG page one day and I think Tyler Mitchell posted his like night at the movie or like night at the cinema, right? So it was like his 24 hour films. And then he plays... You know, Arthur Jaffa's love is a message. The message is death. And I had kind of heard, like I had heard about it and I had heard about Arthur Jaffa, but I had never really seen it. And even though it came out, like, you know, like I think it came out in 2016, maybe. But then I got on a crazy Arthur Jaffa kick and I just wanted to know everything I could about him. And I started Googling him like crazy. And I stumbled upon this YouTube talk between Arthur and Sadia. And they talked for about maybe an hour and 15 minutes and she was so eloquent and so poised and she was very soft-spoken but the things that she talked about were so fucking deep and like so intense that every few seconds I was turning off the video and writing down notes right because my brain just kept like popping off with like ideas right like she would say something about black femininity and womanhood and identity and then I'd be like okay click pause 
ding, 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 and like a stream of consciousness would flow out. And it just turned a light on in me, you know? So I just found that talk to be so great. And I think it's interesting because if you had asked me six months prior or a few months prior, like, would I be doing a podcast with artists? I wouldn't have said yes. It's sort of like COVID was like, okay, well, your life is just different now. You can pursue different things and different interests. And so podcasting had been, had always been something I was interested in, or at least very recently. But then I guess it was these talks that I was like, oh, wow, like this is the kind of magic that you can create when you have a conversation with someone that someone else can then hear and be inspired by. It's like, I like that. Like, I want to do that. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. I'll have to check that talk out because it sounds life changing. No, it was, girl. I will send you a link for real. Yes. It was dope. So I think we're good. And I just want to say, I just want to ask as a last question, what are some of the things that you are most excited about for the future and just most looking forward to? I will say I am most looking forward to seeing myself in five years. I've been doing a daily practice since middle school, which sounds so cringe now, but I thank myself every day for it, which is journaling. And I have journals, you know, from when I was 11 and 13 and up to last night, I journaled. And to be able to look back on where I am now within the next five years and say like, okay, Janae, that decision you made, you know, that was good. You taking that leap of faith that one time, look where it got you now. I'm most excited to see, you know, okay, if I've gone this far within a year, imagine five years, you know, with more community, more relationships, like talking to you, you know, more, yes. more knowledge, more understanding, deeper integration within the field itself, you know, just more of everything. I can only imagine what that'll look like. So I'm very excited for that. I'm excited for that too. And I think that, you know, it'll be like, wow, look how far I've come. Look at what I've done. Yeah. You'll probably surprise yourself. Exactly. And with that, I'm excited to give whatever I can to the me that wants to be here. So I know I get so many questions already on, as you asked, you know, how did you get to where you are? How did you become a curatorial assistant? There are so many who are looking to enter into the field. So many Black people specifically who are looking to enter in the field and are wondering, what does it take to get to where I am? And I don't say that to be, you know, audacious or boisterous in any way. I say that for the reality of, you know, Black people want to be here and I want to be able to tell them this is how you get here. So I'm excited within the next few years to usher in a new generation of Black creatives, Black curators who have just as much curiosity and drive and even more knowledge to bring to the table. I love that. And I just want to say thank you for your time. And I wish you all the best with your endeavors. And I'm sure that we will keep in touch. You know, you're just a train ride away. You're still in Bed-Stuy. We're very close. So yeah, just much success and much love to you. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. This was amazing. That was our episode with Janae Daria Strand. I want to give a big shout out and a thank you to Janae for joining us. And it's a wrap, folks. 
That's our episode of Lightwork Presents Everything is Connected. Conversations on culture and current events with some of today's hottest creative contemporaries. These episodes were recorded in between New York and Miami and reflect the times we are living in while also adding some commentary to the social, cultural, and political issues of the past year. I'm your host, Fola Shade Ologundudu, and we'll see you next time. As always, stay motivated, stay inspired, and stay up. Peace and love, y'all. We out.